Well, good morning. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Matthew, uh, Matthew, that's a couple years ago. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6, my mind just goes back sometimes. Uh, Genesis chapter 6, uh, we're going to begin in verse 9 this Lord's Day and continue through the end of chapter 6 as we continue walking through Genesis, not Matthew, uh, and study God's Word. It's very fitting that we're going to read about Noah's Ark today when some of you might have been looking for an ark out there as the rain's been coming down. Uh, but we're going to talk today about uh, what the Scripture reveals to us about an event that historically uh, we, we refer to often. Uh, you probably learned about this as you were growing up and if you went to church and went to VBS or Bible school or Sunday school class, you heard the ark referred to, uh, but perhaps you don't understand or see the full context of how it fits in Scripture. So that's what we're going to be looking at this Lord's Day. Uh, Genesis chapter 6, beginning in verse 9, and we're going to read down through verse 22. So if you will, follow along with me, and then we'll read this and pray for our time in God's Word. This is what the Lord says to us through uh, His Word, beginning in verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark. You, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. For every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. If you would, pray with me this Lord's Day. Father God, we come to you in Jesus' name and we pray for our time. And this word, this word that you have given to us, we, we pray this Lord's Day, a day that we look to as a reminder, Palm Sunday of the day that Christ entered into Jerusalem as he was intent on going to the cross. Father, we see in the Scripture that on that triumphal day, soon after, He, he went into the temple and He cleansed it. And Father, we are reminded through that of the, the cleansing work that the Gospel does. The cleansing work that is needed. We, we see that work here in Genesis 6. A cleansing of the whole earth through this flood. A judgment for the wickedness and sinfulness of man. Lord, help us to understand this. Help us to understand what this means 
how it applies to us and help us to see the gospel through it this Lord's Day. We pray for these things in Christ's name. Amen. As we come to this text this morning, I want to bring up a question that I brought up as we've gone through Genesis. The question is, why spend time looking at this text? There are many today who would say, well, the events of Noah's Ark, uh, that seems like fantasy. Could that have really happened? There are many who even are scholars of the Scripture who prefer just to kind of pick up somewhere along the lines of Genesis 12 with Abraham and, and ignore what we read in Genesis 1-11. through Accounts of creation, the fall of man, and now we come to this event where God is going to flood the earth and He's going to ask a man to build a, an ark, a boat, and put himself, his family, and, and all the species on the earth there on it, in it. This seems rather like fantasy, and yet, I don't believe it is. I believe this is the literal truth of God's Word, and I believe that we must study it for many reasons. I want to point out again, too, this morning that I've pointed out as we've been looking through Genesis. The first is that you you can't separate the events of Genesis 6 from the rest of the Scripture. It is connected. It's connected throughout the Old Testament. It's connected throughout the New Testament. For example, you see Noah referred to 16 times outside of Genesis. Uh, The scripture goes back to this. It's founded on this. So, for example, uh, you have in the prophets, you have Isaiah. Isaiah 53 is a passage we look to often when we talk about Christ and talk about the cross. Isaiah 53 is where we read these words, verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. We, we look to Isaiah. This prophecy is, is this is true. This was prophetic. This is a word about what would happen on the cross to Jesus. Well, if you go just past Isaiah 53 to Isaiah 54, this is what you read. Verse 9. This is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. Here, God is speaking to his people and he's reminding them of something. He's reminding them of a covenant promise he made to them after the flood. That no more would the earth be flooded. He's reminding them in the context of what? A literal flood through a literal man named Noah. He says in that passage, So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, that I will not rebuke you. He's reminding them of the judgment that he brought through the flood. And so we see this connection in the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament as well. We see it specifically in the words of Jesus. A passage that we looked at in our study of Matthew. Matthew chapter 24. This is what Jesus says about how he's going to return again. Listen to the reference he makes. Verse 37. As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Here Jesus refers to a literal Noah, a literal ark, a literal flood that literally swept them all away. If you have a problem with Genesis 6, you have a problem with Matthew, and you have a problem with Isaiah. These things are all connected. That's one issue. Another issue is this. If you discount Genesis 6, if you just skip right over it, you miss a foundation that God is laying for us concerning the gospel. The gospel does not start in Matthew. The gospel starts in Genesis 1. And what you see here in Genesis 6 is the theme of the gospel. What you see here is an understanding, the foundations of the gospel. And 
I hope that as we look through this text today, I can help you see that as we walk through this and look at what, what do we learn about the gospel from this passage? What do we learn about Noah and the flood from this passage? How do those things connect to us, relate to us today? And so we'll begin looking at that through number one, point one in your notes there. The first thing we see here, I think, that concerns the gospel is that grace leads to faith and faith leads to works. Grace leads to faith, faith leads to works. We have great confusion in the church today, in the world today, concerning works and faith and salvation and how these things fit together. And yet what we see here is an order that we see throughout the Scripture. We'll look at that, but before we do, I want to note one thing. Notice in the context what's happening here. Up to this point, what we've seen in Genesis is, beginning in the garden, you had sin. Adam and Eve sin, they disobey God. Then that sin comes down through their children. And then it gets to the point where it is murder. Cain kills his brother Abel. And so then you see as we walk through Genesis, depravity growing. The consequences of sin growing. Murder, violence. You see people boasting in their strength instead of God's strength. We've seen these, these two lines. The, the unrighteous line, the sinful, depraved line of cave and the, Cain and this righteous line of Seth. And then even last week we looked at how there then became a blurring of these lines as there was intermarrying between their families. And so we've gone from the garden where all was well and good and righteous to the earth is covered with wickedness and depravity. And yet in the midst of that... We find here in verse 9, Noah, a righteous man, blameless in his generation, who walked with God. What we see there is this simple point. It is possible to walk with God when no one else does. We need that reminder. I've often heard people say, well, well you just don't understand my circumstances. You just don't understand the environment I'm in. Well, it's all well and good and easy to live that way when you're in the church and you're around Christians. But when you're out here in the real world, and yet here we have in the text what? One among, probably at this point, millions. And they are not walking with God. And they are wicked. They're to the point that the text tells us that every intention, verse 5, of the thoughts of their hearts were evil continually. There's just evil everywhere. Think of how often someone does something that's wrong, and the way that we talk about it is something like this. Well, they messed up, but you know their heart was in the right place. Uh, you know, it didn't really work out the right way, but, but their intentions were good. God does not look at man and say, well, his heart's in the right place, his intentions are good. He says every thought of his mind, every intention of what goes through his head is continually, consistently, perpetually, 100% of the time, evil and wicked. And in this environment, even in that, you have one who's walking with God. You can walk with God when no one else is. And we see that in Noah. The question is, how did Noah get that way? How did Noah get to the point where in verse 9 it says Noah was a righteous man? How did Noah become righteous? Because we confuse this often in thinking that Noah was a really good guy. That Noah just made some decision that he was going to do this when no one else was going to. But we are misled if that's our line of thought because in order to understand how Noah became righteous, we need to understand the verse before it that we looked at last week. Verse 8, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That word, found favor, we looked at last week. It means Noah 
was shown grace. God gave Noah grace. So note the order here. It's very important. In the midst of wickedness, God looks down at Noah and he shows him grace. Text doesn't tell us up to that point that Noah did anything deserving of God's grace. Doesn't tell us anything about Noah much there other than his family line. But it says God shows him grace. In response to the grace that God then shows him, we see Noah has faith. Noah then is considered righteous. He has faith. Then, in accordance with that faith, with that righteousness that comes as a result of grace, what happens? Then we see Noah was blameless and Noah walked with God. Note again the order. God gives grace, then Noah has faith, and then works proceed. And yet so often we think of it the opposite way. We think that, well, I need to work. And I need to do this and do this, and if I can just work hard enough, man, I could just have strong faith. And if I just work hard enough and I have strong faith, then perhaps one day I'll stand before God and He'll measure me by my works and He'll say, good job, you did it. Here's your reward. And yet the Scripture says, no, it is the total opposite of that. God shows us grace. Left to ourselves, every intention of our heart, of our mind is wicked. God gives us grace. We respond in faith and then works proceed from that. That, that is what you see throughout the Scripture. Now, for example... Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 is a passage we often refer to along these lines. It says this, For by grace, note again, grace comes first. For by grace you have been saved through faith. How do we get saving faith? Because God first gives us grace. He gives us grace. We respond in saving faith. It's not of your own doing. Paul wants to make sure we understand. It's a gift of God. It's not as a result of works. Your works did not bring this upon you. And yet the works have a place. Yes, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works. And so again, just note the order. God gives grace, we respond in faith, and then works are the result. That's what we see in the gospel. That's what we see here in Noah's life. And that's what we need to desperately see because, point two, sin leads to corruption and corruption leads to death. Uh, Apart from God's grace, This is what we're left with. We're left with sin which corrupts, and in that corruption it brings death. Note here in the text how sin is acknowledged, how sin is noted. And we see it this way. God sees sin. It says the earth was corrupt in Noah's sight? No, God's sight. God looks at it and says it's corrupt. Verse 12, God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt corrupt now think of the difference here genesis 1 and creation god sees and does what he sees that it's good and he blesses it by the time we get to genesis 6 god sees that it is corrupted and he curses it he judges it he's going to wipe it out not based on man's perception but based on what god sees this is very important because God sees what we do not always see. God here looks not at the actions. He says every intention of the thoughts of the mind is wicked and evil. I can stare at every one of you right now. And I don't have a clue. Some eyes lit up just now. I don't have a clue what you're thinking. I am thankful for that. (laughs) And you should be thankful as well. 
We don't know what goes on in each other's minds. You can live with someone for 40 years and them not know exactly what's going on in your mind. But do not be deceived. Every moment of every day, God knows exactly what's in your mind. God sees everything. And in this text, we see that. We see God is seeing, and yet we need to understand He sees what we don't always see because we are so easily deceived. For example, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12 says this, there's a way that seems right to man, meaning there's things we do and we think they're right, and yet what do we read? But its end is the way to death. You and I may feel we're doing the right thing. You and I may may feel like we're not in sin. And we may be on our way to the grave. We don't always see our sin. God does. And that is why we must have a measure, a standard by which things are weighed. It's like this. Uh, Sandy and I, when we moved into our home a couple years ago, uh, she asked me to hang some pictures. I'm still working on hanging some of those pictures. But in this case, I actually did get them hung in my son's room. And and I hung this one specific picture, and I looked at it, and I thought, that's... I'm done. I've hung the picture. It looks good. She comes in and says, something's just not right about that picture. And so I kind of turn it and we look and we're just going back and forth on what's straight and what's not straight. And so I go and get a level. And when I hold that level up to the picture, the picture that I thought was like this is like this. The, the level shows me what, what is truly level. And then I can see, oh, wait a second. My, my vision, my perception is, is not correct. They're, it's distorted. It's, it's skewed. Everything in this house is not perfectly level where I can just look and measure it. I, I'm looking and seeing this, and I'm thinking it's the right way, but when I hold a standard up to it, I see, oh, wait, it's off. And friends, that is exactly what God's Word does for us. We, we walk through life thinking we know what's right and wrong. And the Scripture says, oh, you think this is right? You're about to die over this. You don't, you don't have a clue what's truly right and wrong. And that is why we need to be people of the Word. That's why we, not just individually, but we as a church need to be people of the Word. Because I can even get so deceived that I can take the text out of context, and convince myself that I am doing the right thing when I'm in sin. And I need God's people to come around me correctively and say, oh, no, 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 this is what this is saying. This is what we we can see this. We're not in what you're in. We can look and we can see this. Otherwise, we just fall into the pattern we see here of sin corrupting and then corrupting, bringing death. God doesn't just see sin here in this text. God brings judgment over sin. It says here, in verse 13, God looks and says, I've determined to make an end to all flesh. God, God looks at wickedness, He says, I will destroy them. God not only sees sin, God judges sin. But that's not all we see. Because thankfully, we see how God then moves through Noah. Point three, God provides the only means of salvation for man. God God looks at the wickedness of man, and He says He's going to destroy and wipe them off. But verse 14, He says to Noah, who He had given grace, who in response to that grace had righteousness, who in response to that righteousness was, was obedient and obeying God and walking with God, He looks at Him and He says, Noah, 
make an ark. And, and through this ark, through this boat, through these dimensions I give you, you're going to be protected, you and your wife and your three sons and their wives and all these creatures you bring in with you. You're going to be protected. I'm going to save you, Noah. But you're going to do this the way I tell you to do this. That, that's important. We, we live in a day and age where we, we think we can save ourselves. We can set the standard we can figure out how we want to do this. And yet what we see in the Scripture, what we see here with Noah, specifically with the ark, is no, God decides how Noah's going to be saved. And God provides the means through which Noah's going to be saved. And he does it through telling him to build an ark. Now I realize that getting dimensions in cubits may not be very helpful to you this morning. You know, how far do you live from the church? Well, you know, several thousand cubits. We don't use this unit of measurement. In fact, if you look back historically in the ancient world, you'll find variances on even what a cubit was. And to the Babylonians, it's 19.8 inches. Egyptians, 20.6 inches. Hebrews, 20.4 inches. There were smaller cubits. There were 17 and 18. This is why there was such variance. What a cubit was, historically, it was a measurement from the tip of the finger to the tip of the elbow. That, that's a cubit. Now, again, we all have different you know, links from there to there but that they came up with a common cubit. So, for example, I measured my 19 and a half inch cubit here, right here. I measured my wife's 17 inches. She doesn't measure up to me. <laughs> my daughter, Vivian, doesn't measure up to her. She's only 16 inches. So that's, you know, that's how we gauge things in our house. How many, how, what's your cubit? But, but that's, that's essentially the unit of measurement. So just like with our feet, we have a measurement of a foot. A foot is 12 inches. Some of you have a 12-inch foot. Some of you have a 13, 14-inch foot. Some of you have a 7- or 8-inch foot. There's variances there, so we have to pick one, and it's going to be 12. And so when we look historically, biblically, uh, archaeologically, we find that in the biblical time, a cubit probably came down to about 18 inches. That, that's what a cubit would have been. And so then you can translate this and kind of get a better picture of it. So the ark then would have been about 415, excuse me, 450 feet long. Put that in perspective, a football field is 300 feet long. So you're talking about, about a football field and half a football field. So you can kind of picture that. that. That's how long the ark would have been based on an 18-inch cubit. Again, the cubit could have been longer than that, so it would have been even longer. That means the ark would have been 75 feet wide. A football field is about 160 feet wide. So about half the width of a football field is how wide the ark would have been. And 45 feet high. So about four and a half stories. So you start to get a picture of, okay, this is, this is massive. And the construction of this, based on the text, it's, it's kind of this barge-like boat. And what we found through that is that this thing wouldn't have just toppled or turned over. But again, what's the point of the ark? The point of the ark was to save Noah, his family, and all these animals. And that's something that people look at. How can you fit all these animals on the ark? Well, in case you don't think of cubic feet, let me break this down for you. The, the capacity of this boat, this ark, would have been 1.4 million cubic feet. Now to put that in perspective for you, we'll look at it this way. Uh, on trains, on railways, you have livestock carts. And on a livestock cart, you can fit so many animals. So on a livestock cart, for example, you can fit about 240 sh uh, sheep. Based on these dimensions, it means the ark would have held about 570 of those livestock carts. But to break that down even more, almost 140,000 sheep could have fit on the ark. 
I find it interesting, I read an article not long ago by a, a taxidermist. It had nothing to do with biblical history. It was just a taxidermist talking about all the different species of animals. And he said this, while we think of many grand-sized animals, there's also a lot of small-sized animals. And if you were to take the average size of all the species, you would find the average size to be smaller than a common sheep. The ark, based on these dimensions, if you just put animals in half of it, you could fit almost 70,000 animals or 34,000, 35,000 species. That would have left room on the other half of the ark for provisions, for food, for no one's families. You, you can see how this starts then to fit together. God is establishing this, three levels of it. He's putting it together and he's saying, Noah, this is how I'm going to save you. Noah didn't have the option to say, well, God, that's kind of a big ordeal. It's going to take me a while. We don't know for sure. Estimates are it probably took Noah between 50 and 75 years to build the ark. Noah didn't say, well, you know what? I got some branches and twigs over here. I can kind of make my own thing. No. Because that's not the means through which God called Noah to save him and his family. And yet, that's the very argument we place before God today. God has laid out the gospel for us. That, that we have sinned and fallen short of his holy standard. That, that we in our works can never achieve righteousness. That there's only one perfect who has and does, and that's Christ. And He has died as a substitute in our place. And we need to repent and turn from our sin and place our faith in Him. That gets us on the ark. Because in Noah's day, He was going to bring judgment and flood and wrath, but protection on this boat that he called Noah and his family to get on. For us in our day, he offers us salvation as well. And it is in and through Christ. And it is not up to us any more than it was up to Noah to say, I don't like that way, so I'm going to find a different way. John 14, 6, Christ says this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's one way to be saved. There was one opportunity for Noah to save him and his family. There's one opportunity for you and I to be saved today. And it is in and through Christ. And we see that foundation of the gospel in this very text. Which leaves us with this fourth and last point. Point four. Salvation comes through faith and obedience. How then can we be saved? How could Noah be saved? Through faith and obedience to God. Verse 22. Noah did this doesn't say Noah did some of this. doesn't say Noah debated this. Noah questioned this. No, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. This is the only response we are called to. Not a partial, not some, but complete and total obedience that comes from faith, faith that comes from the grace that God offers us through the gospel. We see it here with Noah. We see it for us as well. And so we get this picture of Noah who the New Testament tells us was a herald of righteousness. He was a, essentially like his great-grandfather Enoch who we looked at already who the New Testament tells us he, he preached God's judgment to people. We have Noah here building this massive ship and as he did, chances are he, he is preaching. Judgment is coming and this is the only way to be saved. And friends, that is exactly what we are called to do today. Because judgment is coming. 
God's told us in his word he's not going to flood the earth again. You don't have to walk out when it's raining and be terrified that God's judgment is coming through that rain. In fact, we, we kind of go way to the other extreme. Oftentimes when it rains, we say things like, well, Lord, thank you for the rain, and we need the rain, and thank you for you know, cleaning things and supplying things, and that's all well and good, but perhaps we also need to pray this, Lord, thank you for the rain, because it reminds us you judge sin, and you're going to judge sin again. But this time, there aren't going to be thunderclouds first. You're just going to come, and you're going to do it. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, just like in the days of Noah, everything's great, they're marrying, giving him, they're just doing what they're doing, and then it comes. He's saying it's coming again. Won't be rain. God says it'll be annihilation. But there is a way to be saved. And it is the way God has provided through Christ. It's not our decision how we will save ourselves. God has given us the opportunity. The question is, have you responded through faith and repentance? Because that is the only response the Scripture calls us to do. We repent and we turn from our sin. We place our faith in Christ. And then we are to obey. And so you can't say, well, you know, my salvation isn't my work, so I've been saved and I got my card punched and so I can just kind of do what I want. The Bible has a word for that. It's lost, depraved, sinful, wicked, evil. I guess the Bible has more than one word. It's not right. Now what the scripture says is that for those who have repented and placed their faith in Christ, this, 1 John 5, verses 2 and 3, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commands. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commands. And listen to this. And His commands are not burdensome. We were not under the law and burdened by the law. We have been freed by grace. God's commands aren't burdened. It is not a burden to obey God if you have repented and placed your faith in Him. It is a pleasing thing to obey God. It doesn't mean that it's easy, but it is not a burden. You want to know what a burden is? Sin is a burden. Sin will rob you of all joy in your life. And it will take you places you never intended to go and it will cost you more than you ever thought it would cost. That's a burden. But thanks be to God, Christ has lifted the burden through the cross. And that is what we remember. And that is what we think of when we look to Easter, when we look to a celebration of the resurrection, when we look to things like the Lord's table. When we come to this table, that this is to prompt us to look back and look ahead. This is, we call it the Lord's Supper, but it's not going to fill you. Not in the way you think of food filling you. You're not going to eat this and skip lunch today. You're not going to walk out of here and think, oh, I won't eat for days. You know, a little cracker, a little, little cup of juice. So why do we do it? Because we remember. Christ said, do this in remembrance of me. Remembrance of what? Re remember that God is the one who provides salvation for us and it is through the body and the blood of Christ. It is not through your body and my body and your blood and my blood. It is not through our sweat and our works and our attempts at saving ourselves. It is through what He has provided. We're to remember that He's done it. It's finished. He finished it on the cross. And we're also to look ahead because He says there is going to be a day when we do have a meal and it's going to be a lot more than this and it's going to fill us over and over and over again in a new heaven and a new earth. But what's coming before that? Judgment. 
And just as in the days of Noah, as he was called as a preacher of righteousness to proclaim the gospel to others, to let them know judgment is coming, we are called to the same. Remember the gospel as you gather around this table and be burdened to share that gospel with others. Not burdened like sin burdens us, not burdened like works burden us, but burdened with this is the truth, and we need to take it out to others. Think about those things as we now come to this opportunity to share in the Lord's table together. The, the invitation here is for any here who is a professing believer, who has repented and placed their faith in Jesus, and you have professed that, we, we invite you to join with us. For others, we invite you to observe as we come to this table together. So I want to invite the deacons to come forward to prepare to distribute these elements. And as they do, as we prepare for this, think about what we've looked about. Think about how what we see God doing in Genesis 6 is God is providing. We are sinful. We deserve to be judged. But He is providing salvation. That salvation is through Christ. And it is Christ we remember as we think about what we read in the Scriptures. As we think about how Christ gathered with the disciples for a meal. And as he gathered with the disciples for a meal, he picked up bread. And the scripture tells us he broke the bread. He thanked God for the bread. And he told the disciples this. He says, this bread represents my body. My body which will be broken for you. And every time we as Christians come around this table and receive this bread, we are to be reminded of the same thing. That it is Christ's body that was broken for us. Not my body, not your body. Not my works, not your works. It is His finished work that provides us salvation. And if you have placed your faith in anything else, then we invite you to repent of that as you prepare to receive this element with us. Let me pray for us as the deacons prepare to distribute this element. Father, thank You for the cross. Thank You for Christ. Thank you, Lord, that his body was broken on our behalf. Thank you, Lord, that he paid the debt that we could never pay, that we would spend eternity separated from you in hell under your wrath for, that he took that for us on the cross. Father, help us now to see if there's anywhere in our life where we are trusting in ourselves or trusting in something else, to repent of that, to trust fully in Christ. We pray, God, this will be the attitude of our heart as we prepare to receive this together. Pray for this in Christ's name. Amen.